Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. He had enormous talent. He knew a lot about the movie business. He was not, as they call it, a suit. In, in Hollywood terms, he was someone who really dug in and into the content and, and, and picked good movies and then promoted them well. So Harvey had real talent. And the challenge for me was, I'm writing about a monster. Could I climb out of that monster stereotype and write about his talent and why he was talented? And I tried to do that. Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch, and this is the podcast that's based on the simple premise that everything today and everybody is a brand. Every personality, every cult, every cult, I don't even know why I'm saying that. <laughs> every institution, every athlete, every celebrity, every company, every product, every movement, um, and every cult is, <laughs> is a brand. The brand is a set of values, and we do two things here. We do an interview with a... Uh, Somebody about their own personal brand today is the fantastic author, Ken Oletta. He's got a new uh, biography on Harvey Weinstein out that just is just incredible. It's just out. Um, we're going to talk all about Harvey Weinstein and uh, a bunch of other stuff also. But he's a fascinating guy. And we do what we call the Brands of the Week. And these are the brands that are kind of shaping the zeitgeist, which brands are going up, which brands are going down, and who's driving who we are today. So let's get right to Brands of the Week. First up, brand down for Elon Musk. Just kind of a jerk. You know, the, the, by now you all know that the, um, his, his bid to take on Twitter uh, fell apart. Uh, the stock tanked. Uh, he left shareholders holding a bag. Uh, he was able to, so a lot of people think it was a, jo- Josh Wolf, co-founder of Lux Capital, said the entire thing was a clever ruse to sell and liquidate $8.5 of Tesla stock with a plausible excuse for doing it. Because obviously when CEOs sell their stock, that stock usually takes a hit, but he had a reason to do it. I just think he's a slime bag overall. Um, you know, this is a guy that I think is a dangerous guy. He's obviously got a huge megaphone, richest or second or third richest, depending on the week or month guy on the planet, and seems to be kind of a real loose cannon. And um, he's a guy we need to watch. I think he's a very concerning figure. So brand down for him. This is an interesting one. I'm going to give a... Still a brand down for Kamala Harris, which is weird because the poll says, which I don't believe, a um, Harvard University Center poll said that Harris enjoys uh, a 39% to 37% lead in Ron DeSantis if they ran against each other for president. Now, I can't stand DeSantis, but everything I know about life and business and behavior and people says DeSantis would just blow her away at this point. Um, I, I just think she's been a real disappointment. I don't know if it's the administration's fault, if it's her fault. Um, she there has not been associated with anything important. She had missteps as far as um, everything with the border. Uh, she has just not connected in many ways. She's got a lot of the problems that Hillary Clinton had, just not believable, not genuine. Um, and I just think she's been a disappointment. We're going to call it as it is, even though this poll which I would bet against any day of the week, says that she would beat DeSantis. But uh, speaking of unpopularity, um, Biden, obviously a brand down in a new, um, I think it was the New York Times poll, has him at 33% approval rating. His overall approval rating, if you put all the polls together, is 38%, which is even lower than Trump. But the the real brand down, and this is a, a, a... is that basically unpopularity is the new norm for presidents. A 40% approval rating somewhere around there is where most presidents end up today. And I think that's because of the media. I think it's because of polarizing company. I, I don't think it's possible except for a rare moment in time. And we go back to when George W. Bush, where was it a 70%, you know, 76% after 9-11. I mean, I think in a, if we were Ukraine and Zelensky was, uh, we were taking his poll numbers, they'd be incredibly through the roof. But in normal times, 
I just think presidential poll numbers are going to always suck. I just think you've got 50% baked in, that you know, because we are so tribal at this point, or 45% baked in against no matter what they're doing. And then the other 10 or 15 or 20% kind of shake and bake. And, and when everything is just not going right for you, it's going to automatically dip to 40 or below. And things are not going to always be going right for any president. So there you go. Uh, brand down for the life expectancy in the U.S. We've fallen below China. The average life expectancy of Chinese people uh, has risen to almost 78 years old. And in the United States, it's been stuck at 76.6 for the last year or two. Almost a year and a half difference. And, and that's... Interesting. You know, the average person would go, oh, there's a bit of quality of life here and Chinese workers work so, so much harder than American workers and there's still so much poverty in different parts of China, yet the life expectancy in China. So China's pulling ahead of us in many, many ways and one of the critical ways is life expectancy. Brand up for antidepressants. This is fascinating. If I asked you, what percentage would you say of American population takes some form of antidepressant, a, a, some type of prescription for mental health? 16%, almost one in five Americans are taking some type of mental health medicine. And that's a good thing. Almost a quarter of Americans over the age of 18 are now medicated for some type of mental issue. So one in four over the age of 18. And I'm going to guess as you get older, that number would even grow. Now, is this a function of we are a less healthy state of mental health society? Or is it just that these medications are now available? And I think it's more of the latter. I don't think that there's any more or less mental health in this country than there was 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. I think it's just much more publicized and I think there are medications for it now. So I think that's a good thing. And I said, yeah, brand out for antidepressants. Brand out for the news media, it hits an historic low. Um, this is amazing. And Republicans trust it a lot less than Democrats, no surprise. But just 5% of, this is a Gallup poll, 5% of Republicans said that a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in newspapers compared to 35% for Democrats. And only 8% of Republicans said they had a great deal or quite a great confidence in TV news compared to 20% of, of Democrats. So Republicans, it's 5 and 8% for TV and newspaper, uh, actually the other way around. And for Democrats, it's 35 for newspaper, 20 for TV. But the, the, the news media, Donald Trump has been a, a big part of this, obviously, but this was kind of waning as it was. The Bush, it started during the Bush and Obama, Obama administrations. But news, just in an all-time low in for credibility. And that's a problem with all the important things that are happening in the news now, particularly the January 6th uh, hearings. Amazing stat with the January 6th, very, very sobering. And this was a uh, Monmouth poll that a year ago, I'm just diver diverting for a second, a year ago, 63% of Republicans thought, the, thought what they saw on January 6th was a riot. And now, a year later, after watching all that footage, 46% only think it's a riot, and now 63% think it's a protest. So it's actually reversed. More people think it's no a legal protest than it was a riot than they did a year ago. That's the Republicans. So that's how much the people trust news, and that's a problem there. Brand down for Dallas Cowboys. I can't stand the Cowboys, and I don't like Jerry Jones. Um, they've got a per partnership with a coffee company now. The coffee company is Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, they have AK Espresso, Murdered Out, and Silencer Smooth Coffee. Talk about tone deaf. Come on, Cowboys. You, you're, you're worth $6 billion as a franchise. You need to get in bed with a, with a coffee company that uses guns and rifles and murder as part of their branding. Fuck you. Come on. Get, get with it. Brand up for the Las Vegas Raiders. They hired Sandra Douglas Morgan as the team's president, the first black female president in NFL history. The Raiders, which always have kind of like a, 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 a renegade, uh, um, sometimes a, what's the word I want to an outlaw personality, but they make a lot of strides. So we got to give them the, the, the credit here. Brand up for Stranger Things. I've not watched it on Netflix, but you got to listen to this one. The, the Stranger Things is the latest season has pushed the total viewership of the series to more than 1.15 billion hours of streaming. Think about that. Over a billion hours of streaming on one show. Um, it's also hit number one on Netflix top 10 lists in 91 countries. I would love people to write me and tell me what it is about this show. It just, I tried to watch it. I couldn't get into it, but it is, uh, it's, it's certainly a thing, as they say. Brand up for the Carters. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter just celebrated their 76th wedding anniversary. That's amazing. Only, I take a guess at how many couples make it to 50 years plus. Only 6%. 
and they're at 76 years, so I don't even think that's on the charts. But there you go. It's going to be interesting to see how history views Jimmy Carter. You know, he's not seen to have a successful presidency. Um, he got trounced by Reagan. In his tenure, it seems like we're heading in that direction now. You had spiking gas prices. You had runaway inflation. You had runaway interest rates, uh, a terrible economy. You, you had the Iran uh, hostage crisis. Uh He's been he's been very 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 uh, charitable and altruistic in his post presidency, and we'll see how history treats him. Brand down for American Airlines. Um, what they did was in, inexcusable, according to a Georgia mom. They lost somebody's kid for a while. A mother is speaking out after American Airlines led her daughter to wander alone in Miami airport after flight. She booked a twelve year old daughter on a flight from Chattanooga, Miami, uh, and you're supposed to obviously get uh, chaperoned. And some went with somebody under the age of 12. Anybody, uh, American Airlines requires children age 5 to 14 traveling alone to use an unaccompanied minor service, which the couple, which the parents paid 150 bucks for, but somehow they let this kid get off the plane on her own, uh, wander around. She used FaceTime with her father to help her navigate the airport. But American Airlines, you can't lose people's children. Come on. Brand up for weed, specifically holiday weed. July 4th, weed sales hit a record high. Um... They sold the real standout on the Friday, the Friday before the 4th of July, uh, sold 106 million in sales, a 19 leap from the same day last year. July 1 now ranks as the second best day on in 2022, trailing only April 20th is Weed Day, uh, which is a combination of Black Friday and Amazon Prime Day for weed sales. Um, brand up, I love this one, for Kellogg and Nickelodeon, creating new Kellogg's Applejack slime cereal. Now, this gets a brand up because I just am a big Apple Jacks guy. I love Apple Jacks. And um, they created a cereal, and, and in the cereal, Apple Jacks are, they've got, I think it's their green and uh, orange Apple Jacks, the actual little Apple Jacks, you know, little loops. Yes, but they have a sprinkler now. When you pour milk in, the milk turns green, like a Nickelodeon slime green. So you get to eat your Apple Jacks in green milk. So I'm going to do this immediately. Okay. Uh, what's one? What's the most popular U.S. vacation spot? Samira, I think it's pronounced Samira, S-M-Y-R-N-A, Samira Beach. Why? Because they've had through three brutal shark attacks in the last year. This is amazing. It's been the shark capital. A popular American beach has been named the shark capital of the world and has already been hit by three brutal attacks this year. Um, and now their uh, uh, tourism is through the roof. People want to go visit there. See, to me, call me crazy. If there's a beach where there's been three brutal shark attacks in the last year, I'm probably going to stay away from that beach. But what do I know? I don't understand the American consumer today because what's happening now? More people than ever going to this beach. So there you go. And finally, huge brand up for Tony Sirico and uh, James Kahn. Both passed away this year. Both uh, iconic figures in mob uh, pop culture lore, uh, mob entertainment lore. James Caan, of course, played Sonny Corleone uh, in The Godfather, uh, had other roles, Brian Song, Misery, uh, The Gambler, but really known as, as one of the great characters of all time, Sonny Corleone, who meets, a, meets an unfortunate uh, demise at the toll booth. Uh, we all know that scene all too well. And Tony Sirico, Paulie Walnuts, in um, The Sopranos, died at age 79. He actually was a former real-life mob guy who started acting uh, in 1974, um, been on a host of movies, but really became iconic, known as Paulie Walnuts, who was kind of Christopher Moltisanti's partner, adversary in, uh, in uh, Sopranos, still the best TV show of all time. So we wish their families both well, sending prayers and hugs. And that's it for today's Brands of the Week. Let's now right get to our interview with uh, Ken Aletta. If you have any interest in the Harvey Weinstein saga, which is one of the most sordid, uh, disgusting tales of uh, human misuse of power, uh, you will hear it right now. Let's take a listen. That's another sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Look, I'm going to break it down simple because I'm a marketing guy. If you've got to sell anything online, it's Shopify, and there's not a close second. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anything anywhere, giving entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses, customized to their needs with a great-looking online store that brings their idea to life and manages their day-to-day -day driving of sales. It believes in liberating commerce to all because entrepreneurship has the power 
to unleash possibilities. Shopify's powers millions of entrepreneurs just like you from first sale to full scale. Every 28 seconds, a small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. Get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. Plus, with 24-7 support, you're never alone. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie right now. Shopify.com slash Donnie. If you got to sell stuff online, you want to go to Shopify. I am thrilled with today's guest. Uh, I think he's the most important uh, media and technology writer of our time. Uh, bestseller, 13 books, most of them national bestsellers. New bestseller, out, just out, uh, Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein, The Culture of, of Silence. Uh, we've got so much to talk about. Ken, welcome to the show. Ken Aletta. Thank you. Great to have you. Great. I'll tell you one, the most important, you know, doing my research, the thing that I, struck me out the most, and we have so much to talk about, is that you ran OTB for years, <laughs> for a few years. What the <laughs> I fuck? I try and that, right. <laughs> How did that, that just doesn't, that just, I'm looking at your resume of everything from, you know, working with Bobby Kennedy to all the books, to all the profiles you've done, uh, to, to New Yorker, to everything. And I'm like, wait a second, he ran OTB for three years. How did that happen? Well, what happened was that I, I, in politics, I, I, after getting a graduate degree in political science, I went to work for a guy by the name of Howard Sanders. Sure, who, he ran for he ran for governor. Ran for governor with my help, he lost. Uh, I was his go. campaign manager. Right. I don't, I don't advertise that as much. He was he invented baggies. He invented the plastic clothesline. He was an engineer and a really bright guy. He was the first Democrat to support John Lindsay for re-election in '69 going against the Democratic Party, a candidate by the name of Mario Procaccino. Mario Lindsay, Procaccino, wow. <laughs> this is right. six, like 68, right? It, no, it was actually, it was, it was 69. 69, okay, right. And, and, um, and so after, after Lindsay got reelected, he asked Samuels, would, would he um, start up the first off-track betting company in the United States? And Samuels agreed to do it for a dollar a year, and I was his executive director, because we were very close. And so we did that for three years and then left for him to run for governor in 1974. And he went from a 20-point lead in the polls to a 20-point defeat in the polls. With your magic, (laughs) right? With your magic. (laughs) So let's get right into the new book, because this Harvey Weinstein, um, obviously a villain, one of the most compelling characters of our time. I mean, obviously a heinous guy, and, and we all know. Was the inspiration for the book your original profile? Uh, um, you know, you were frustrated, obviously, it's been well-documented that you just could not get the women to go on record, but was was kind of a big motivation. Okay, I, I, I peeled back the layers. I couldn't get them all the way back, and now here we go. Well, a motivation was in 2002 when I did that 20,000-word profile, I portrayed Harvey as, as monstrous. Yes, and his abusive. And, yeah, yeah. and abusing people, but could not nail him on sexual predation, which I, I believe was true, but the woman wouldn't talk. So I, I had a desire to, to nail him on that, knowing that he was guilty of it. And, and maybe you could prevent him from doing it, making more victims more women victims. Uh, so I went back at him and, and without success. Um, and then in 2017, when Ronan Farrow was reporting for NBC, uh, he called me up and did an interview with me. And then he showed me that he actually had broken the case. He had three women on camera. He had five, by name, he had five women on camera, shielded, their identity shielded. And he had the audio tape of the Italian model who Harvey had grabbed her breasts. So I said, my God, you've broken the case. But then NBC decided not to yeah. run his piece, saying you didn't have the goods. So he called me to tell me, commiserate about that. I then put him in touch with The New Yorker, and, and he went to The New Yorker and wrote. He, all the information he had at NBC appeared in The New Yorker, and plus some, I'm sure. And, and he, he came out a week after The New York Times expose of Harvey in October 2017. So then I said to myself, to answer your question, Donnie, is 
What made Harvey a monster? Why did he do this? How did he use or abuse his power? What was the relationship with the people who knew he was abusing women or certainly should have known? How did they enable him and why did they enable him? And was it similar to what we see happening in the Republican Party with Donald Trump? Today? Yeah, yeah the, par- where, where the, parallel, people- the parallels are stunning. They really, yeah. really are. Yeah. And, and then I was also interested in the relationship between Harvey and his brother Bob, who had been best friends and partners all through life, in the end, divorced. Yeah. And, and the brother actually fired Harvey from the Weinstein Company. So you you went back. So was there anything in his early years that would would kind of uh, give a prognosis that this was coming out? I'm just I know I know his about his years in Buffalo as a promoter, but early on, growing up, growing up in Flushing, incidents or profiles that would say, "Hmm, this is the beginning of a monster." Well, you know, he did not date very much. There was no evidence I could find of him abusing women either in junior high school or high school. Well, the first three years he attended the State University of Buffalo. But he was abused verbally by his mother, Miriam. And she would yell so loudly that his friends, they played poker every weekend. Mm -hmm. And they always refused to play poker at the Weinstein home because Miriam yelled too much. Harvey, you're too fat. Harvey, stop eating that. Harvey, do this. Harvey, do that. And for them, for teenagers, it was very unsettling. So they refused to do that. So there was clear evidence of, of that the mother had an influence. And when I asked Bob Weinstein in one of the many interviews we did, I said, Bob, what do you see of your father and Harvey? He said, I don't see my father. I see my mother and Harvey. And, and you know, that, that doesn't explain his, his abuse of women, but it does help explain his yelling. Well, what I don't want to say because I'm not a psychologist, but just obviously, you know, he's probably brought this incredible anger towards women, uh, you know, that vis-a-vis the way his mother treated him. Once again, it's infinitely more complicated than that, but you could see the seeds there, no question about it. You could see that, but what I also saw in the reporting I did was that Harvey did not start abusing women, I mean, physically abusing them, until he became powerful. Until when he, in the rock promotion business, it was called Harvey and Corky Presents. Mm-hmm. That's when he had the first time a real taste of power. And that's the first time he started raping and abusing women. And that, that continued throughout his movie career. Once again, playing, let's play psychologist because neither one of us are. So, of course, give no credibility, but let's do it anyway. So, the question always that I got, and I knew Harvey, I knew Harvey very casually, uh, like most people in the media circles in New York. And I always heard, you know, you knew he was an asshole and you knew he was a screamer and you knew he was all that, you knew he was a womanizer, but nobody knew to the extent, obviously. And the question I would always get asked when all this came out hey, wait a second. And here's a guy that just, being Hollywood guy could get a million women, you know, just because of his position of power without abusing and without even pre-quo-quos just because of who he was. So why the monster? What, what, why the need? What did you find in your reporting and in all of your interviews that says, okay, a guy's in a position to get millions of women, you know, forget the, whatever their motives are. So why this, this, this heinous, monstrous performance? I think Harvey needs to conquer people. He, he would do it verbally. He would do it in negotiations. And he would do it with women over sex. And it wasn't enough to, he didn't have the patience to court them. Uh, it was just, I mean, Harvey, when he, he smoked, he was a chain smoker. Mm-hmm. He would rip the top of, of the cigarette pack off to, just to grab it because he didn't have the patience to, to open it slowly. And he would just shovel food in his mouth, dripping sometimes the leftovers on his shirt. Harvey was had no patience. And I think with women, he had no patience. And I think he wanted something and they were there. And I think in his mind, he probably justified it, that it was a trade. They want something for me, a role in a movie, mm-hmm. an, an actress career, work in my company. And I want something from them, sex. Yeah. The... um. The, also, the big question, which obviously is going to be throw the book, is is how did this go on for so long? I mean, people within the circle, um, there's stories of just, you know, once again, the assistants had to set up, you know, scenarios where women, they would send women directly to his hotel room. I mean, on and on and on. So in, in, in not one thought, but in a kind of just a, a singular train of thought, how, how, how did this go on for so long? It went on for four decades. 
and Harvey was not the first time it ever appeared in the press that Harvey might be a sexual predator was in 2015 when the Italian model came forward and claimed he, he grabbed her breasts. And she, the police wired her. She was the first person who ever go to the police against Harvey. Again, not till 2015. Mm-hmm. And they wired her and she had a tape recording of him doing that. But when the district attorney didn't think he could successfully prosecute Harvey over this, what happened was she, she received a million dollar non-disclosure agreement settlement and issued a statement basically exonerating Harvey of, of the previous claim she had made against him. So once again, it passed in, into the it, away and nothing happened until he was exposed in October of 2017, first in the New York Times and then a week later by Ronan Farrow in the New Yorker. What was equally heinous about him was not only his his deeds, but the things he would do to cover up his deeds and the things he would, the, the, his, his modus operandi as far as, you know, trying to get goods on his victims and the, the lengths he would go to. Talk about some of the, the, the extraneous, not extraneous, the extravagant moves and, and, and villainous deeds to covering up and, and, and you know, going hired, after his victims. He hired, in 2016, he hired a company called Black Cube. And Ronan Farrow reported extensively on what he did. But I, as one of the people, reporters who got a call from someone who pretended to be a journalist, this guy Friedman called me as he called other people and, and, and said, are, are you working on anything on Harvey? I'm, I'm doing a report. I'm a reporter. And what do you know about him? Are you doing stuff? And in Ronan Farrow's case, they actually, he has reported, they actually tailed him. He thinks his, his phone was yeah, tapped by yeah. them. These were ex-Mossad agents, many of them. In Rose, Rose McGowan's case, the actress who claimed that Harvey raped her, he literally had a woman who befriended her, pretending to be working for a company that wanted her to give a very lucrative speech. And she became Rose McGowan's best friend, and she was a spy. So they would do these things that were quite extraordinary. Um, and Harvey paid a lot of money to have him do it. Harvey, when he was found guilty, he just in courtroom said, you know, I'm innocent. I don't understand how could this happen in this country? What's your best guess as he's sitting in prison right now? Does he think he did anything wrong? I think Harvey's in denial. I I think he does not acknowledge. One of the questions I wanted to ask him, in the end, he agreed to answer some of my email questions. Um, Harvey didn't like me from the time I wrote. He didn't like you from the the time you wrote that first profile. But then he eventually agreed to answer email questions. And one of the questions I asked him that he did not answer but I thought was really a question I would love to know his answer. Harvey, when you put your head on a pillow after raping, let's say, Jessica Mann, or I could, you can name 100 women, and how did you justify it to yourself? How did you feel about that? What did you think? Uh, how did you justify it to yourself, what you had done? And he never answered that question. I suspect if he had, he would have said, I don't know what you're talking about. This was a consensual Affair, And I think, again, go back to the trading analogy. He wanted something from them. They wanted something from him. And and I don't think in his mind he is a rapist. Incredible. Incredible. If you look at the definition of a sociopath, and I talked to a fair number of of professional doctors about Harvey and uh, people like Harvey, and they acknowledge they hadn't, they're not talking about Harvey because they didn't interview him. But there are three key ingredients to a sociopath. One is lack of empathy. Two is lack of guilt. And and three is narcissism. Yeah. And Harvey's guilty in all three. It sounds like somebody who's been, was running the country for four years. But talk to me about having de- de- dove back in the parallels. First of all, before we get in further... You have the greatest Trump anecdote that sums him up, and it, it, it's one of the more benign examples of him. But just about talk to me about in Madison Square Garden how you kept bumping into him and he kept asking about you. This is it's such a little thing, but it's so stunning and so demonstrative of 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 the sociopath sociopathic nature of Trump. Do, Donald Trump 
father used to go to Gaggiulio's restaurant in Coney Island for lunch every day with his assistant. And Donald sometimes would come there. My father had a little sporting goods store around the corner and he lived in Trump Village. My mother and father lived in Trump Village, which was a middle class, you know, working class sure, sure. housing in, in Coney Island. And, and Fred Trump and my father would say, hi, they didn't know each other. They knew just waving at each other. But Donald, when he would come, he would say to his father, his father would say to him, you know, that guy there, Pat Oletta, is the father of the Daily News columnist, Ken Oletta. And in Coney Island, the Daily News is a big deal. Sure, Writing for The New Yorker wasn't a big deal. <laughs> and so I would go, I was a Nick fan. I would go to games and Donald, I would see him uh, from time to time. And once I saw him, he said, hey, Kenny, I don't know anyone who calls me Kenny. He called me <laughs> Kenny. And he says, hey, Kenny, how's your pop? I said he died. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. The next year at a Nick game, I see Donald Trump again. Hey, Kenny, how's your pop? I said he died. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. The third year, I see Don. He says, hey, Kenny, how's your pop? I said the same. <laughs> <laughs> so what? That was not, I mean, he didn't, basically, you're talking about a man who didn't listen. Right. Not only that, just so, so what are the other Trump Weinstein uh, Trump Weinstein parallels? They're just having somebody who just is a citizen of this country and watching Trump and as a as a journalist and having now done this incredible deep dive on Weinstein. What are the well, Trump Weinstein parallels? A number of a number of things pop into mind. One is surrounded by enablers. Yeah. You look at Don, no one reported on Harvey for four decades. Look at Donald Trump today spreading big lies about a fraudulent election, et cetera. And, and the Republican Party just does nothing to assault him, his, his lies. And they don't for the same reason that Harvey's people did. They were afraid of him. And I would also argue they, they lacked character mm -hmm. in not coming forward. But that, that's one similarity. A second similarity is they both lie with impunity. I mean, Harvey, you know, made things up all the time. And sometimes to himself. And I think Donald Trump similarly does, does the same. Third, they were very convinced that fear was an essential element of power. And they used fear to enhance their power. And, and not just fear, but also rewards. Harvey had a book publishing on him, talk books. He would give book contracts to journalists and others Rudy Giuliani, Al Gore's children, that he thought might, might help him in good seat. He would give campaign contributions, as Donald Trump did when he was a Democrat, you know, to Democrats as well as Republicans. So the similarity of, of knowing how to use power and also abusing power was very similar. Those are three things that pop into mind right away. What was the one thing in the book, not the one thing, What what is there anything that sticks with you of all the anecdotes and all the stories and all of the abuses of women that jump out, jumped out at you from the book that or jump out at a reader and go, wow, this is, this is the most frightening thing I've ever seen. Oh God, there's so many I'm trying to calibrate and, 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 and settle on one. I mean, he would, when he, for instance, the first woman I think he raped, Hope Damore in Buffalo, she came to New York with him. And and he said to her, I can only get one room at the Park Lane Hotel. She was his assistant. Mm -hmm. And he came to do, to do some work and professional work. And she was there to help him. And he, he's at the Park Lane desk. And he says, turns to her and he says, I can only get one room. She was not alarmed by that because she knew, he knew she had a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And she knew that, that he was dating someone at the time. And also, it was very common in colleges to room, uh, yeah. male and females to room mm -hmm. together. So he went to bed on the couch. She went to bed in the bed. And suddenly this heavy set guy, naked, comes behind her and, and, and starts to funnel her. And, said, and she says, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he says, do you want to alienate me for 20 minutes of your time? And then he proceeded, proceeded to rape her. And obviously he was... He was, you know, he weighed 150 pounds more than she did. But she's, I said, why didn't you go to the police? She said, all the off-duty cops worked on his concerts. I mean, he and, and all his ads were in the local newspapers. They, who would believe me? You know, I would just be some shrill, uh, noisy woman trying to get, break out and get some publicity for myself. 
So I just buried it and, and went along. And then she was fired by him uh, two weeks later. I am um, having, as I said, always seen Harvey around town. One of the physically most unappealing people you would ever meet. It's just not a physically attractive. Uh, his face had pockmarks. He was very heavy. He was always, even if he was in a suit, it just looked like it, he had just gone to a sauna in the suit. As you said, and I, I, I've eaten with him and he would just gross eating. There were also discussions about his genitalia, that, that he had physical impairments there. Talk to me about his physical appearance and how that has kind of informed you know, some of his life. Trial, which I, I, I attended every day, um, the criminal trial in New York that found him guilty. Several women on the stand described his physical features. And at one point, the district attorney, the prosecutor, uh, handed out to the jury pictures, yeah. five sets of pictures of Harvey nude. And the jury just you know, looked away almost. They just passed it. They didn't want to look at it. But what the woman on the stand said is that he was full of blackheads. His back was Ugh. full of blackheads. Right. They said that he had a prominent scar in his stomach, which he, which he did have. They, they then said he had no testicles, uh, which I think he does have testicles. I think what happens if you're fat and you sit, yeah, they it disappear. pushes yeah. your yeah. testicles and your penis below. They said at one, one of them actually said he had a vagina. Again, that was not true. If you have a small penis, which I suspect he had, though I yeah. can't, I can't confirm that. Um, I, you, you sit, and I think what happens is that you, your penis goes inside, and it looks like you have a slit there when right. he, he really didn't. But nevertheless, here's a guy sitting at the defense table, listening to, and they talked about his foul odor. By the way, oh, that was the yeah. other thing that witnessed. So here's a guy sitting at the defense table, listening to that. How humiliating is that? I mean, I kept on saying, I, I always picked a seat in the fourth row where I had a direct line I could, of sight to Harvey, so mm -hmm. I could watch him. And, and I watched him as that was going on. He didn't seem to flinch, which really surprised me. Oh, what's his day like now? He's in a wheelchair in a hospital ward at, at the prison in Los Angeles. He's been transferred from the prison ward at the hospital outside of Buffalo in New York where he's serving a 23-year sentence. He will go on trial in October in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. There are 11 indictments. There are only five in New York. We don't know who the five, or who the 11 women are who are testifying against him yet. Uh, but if he's found guilty in Los Angeles, and it's a strong case, it seems to me a little stronger than the case in New York, actually. But if he, if he is found guilty, he will then be remanded back to the prison in Buffalo to fulfill his 23-year sentence. And then he would, if found guilty, would go to be transferred back to Los Angeles. But he also faced a possible trial in London. Yeah, Harvey's not, Harvey's never going to see the light of day again. That, that yeah, I think yeah, we can be Actually, sure. his, his lawyer in, in Donna Rotono, in the sentence hearing before the judge sentenced him to 23 years, said, Your Honor, I, I hope you'll have a more lenient sentence in the 30 years the prosecution is asking for, because I don't believe Mr. Weinstein will live out his term. He has a stent in his heart. He has stenosis, which is why he's in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. He has high, very high blood pressure. Yeah. He has severe diabetes. He has, he has high cholesterol. And he he's blind in one eye from glaucoma. Take away the, the the heinous part of him and just focusing on the success part. You've profiled so many, so many people, you know, from Barry Diller to Rupert Murdoch to Reed Hastings to, you know, it, the list goes on and on. Any parallels that you've seen from all these uber, uber successful people in terms of in their lives, in terms of their makeup? Well, many of them have talent and Harvey has talent. Yeah. And one of the things that was an interesting challenge for me, I'm writing about a monster who the Coney Island kid in me would have loved to have punched in the nose. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm also writing about a guy who did these amazing movies, My Left Foot, The Crying Game, Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, Shakespeare in Love. I mean, all the Academy Awards he won, all the nominations he received. They were not flukes. I mean, Harvey is a really talented guy and not just a talented marketer. He knew how to read a script and judge whether the script was any good because if the script, he knew if the script wasn't good, the movie wouldn't be good, no matter what director or actors were in it. So he had enormous talent. He knew a lot about the movie business. He was not, as they call it, a suit in, in Hollywood terms. He was someone who really dug in and into the content and, and, and picked good movies and then promoted them well.
So Harvey had real talent. And the challenge for me was, I'm writing about a monster. Could I climb out of that monster stereotype and write about his talent and why he was talented? And I tried to do that. It was a biography. You don't want to read a book where someone's just hitting someone over the head sure. again and yeah. again and again. Were there any women in his life that he did not put in the same category as what I'll just call prey for most of the women that he interacted with? Was there any, any whether it's an actress or any other women he worked with, that he treated in the way a woman yeah. should be treated? I think his two wives. He treated well and was in love with. But he, I think Harvey couldn't help himself. I think he's a sex addict and, and not to mention a sociopath. And I think he did. But I think he loved Georgina, his second wife. I think he loved Eve, his first wife. Um, by the way, he, 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 everything I, I could report, he was said to be a very good, attentive father. Mm-hmm. He had three daughters from his first wife and two young, uh, a son and a daughter from his second wife. And supposedly he was very attentive. And his brother Bob, who now doesn't hasn't spoken to Harvey in years and won't, said he was a good uncle to his two kids. Fascinating. So the Me Too movement, we're in, I guess, year five of, of the heightened. Harvey was really the, the, the lightning, the irony of this is that he, he was the lightning rod for a very positive movement. Um, where do you see that pendulum? Uh, it, it is, it, it, it's really interesting in that um, that it's funny. My, Jay Leno ended his uh, run. His uh, people don't realize this is, and he said, "Here's the one I'm most proud of." And he opened up his curtain on stage, and it showed 200 families that had met at his workplace. And the workplace, I know I've had just beautiful, you know, love affairs in the workplace. It's what when I was young, I was single. It's what you're doing with 90 percent of your waking hours. It's shared passion, and for instance, how is that now playing out as far as a workplace? I know now I approach work when I'm at MSNBC. Very different. I won't even say to somebody, oh, you look great today. I mean, it's just like, it's it. you really, really, where do you see this pendulum now as far as how, behave, what I'm just going to talk about, male, female behavior in the workplace? Well, there's no question that Me Too has had a very salutary effect on behavior and, and it helped reform things that need need reforming and and alerted and maybe alarmed men not to behave in ways that they were accustomed to behaving. That's all good. But there's also no question that there's a, that, that there's some excesses. And and if to see Al Franken and so many other people grouped together with Harvey Weinstein, you see, and I, I'm sure you see this more than I do, I, I know any number of men, exe- male executives I've talked to, who say they will not meet alone with mm-hmm. a woman mm-hmm. in their office. They will not meet unless the door is open. 100%. So you think about the lost mentoring that takes place. Very interesting. In, I, I know a very, very, that's, very that's, se- senior woman who, uh, one of the most powerful women in finance in this country, you know, at a bank, and and she said the exact same thing. Her because her boss, the CEO, will not, you know, will not be on a plane alone with a woman. Will not, and you're. She's brought up that exact point from a woman's perspective. No, it, it, it it's a worrisome thing, and also, you know, you think of, of the fact that that um, one of the things that came out of the Me Too movement and feminist argument is that uh, believe women. That was the slogan: believe women. Well, I'm a journalist. You're a journalist. I. I if you say to me, believe the president of the United States, believe everything the mayor or the governor says to you, you would say, I'm a journalist. I don't, I don't do that. The right slogan is listen to women, mm-hmm. not believe women. Uh, believe women is, is kind of zealotry. And, 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 and I think that has to change some as well. In other words, every time someone makes an accusation, that doesn't mean the accusation is correct. Yeah. Yeah, it we, it's been tremendously positive, but like with our, everything, there there is we'll find the 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 slot. Whereas whereas we're listening, and yet there's not a reaction where we're not stifling other things, positive things that that, that happen. Um, I'm just curious. I would take a ten thousand feet up because you're you're such a smart guy who's been watching the world, who's been watching power, who's been watching the media, who's been watching technology. I, and I'm a little younger than you, but I'm going to call us both grizzled veterans in, in the world. I can never remember 
the world feeling as sober as it does right now. When you, when you put in Roe v. Wade, when you put in guns, when you put in January 6th, when you put in that, that 70% of this country still thinks, 70% of Republicans still think the election was a lie, that our democracy is truly on the precipice. Give me some hopeful, give me some hopeful words, or maybe maybe you don't have them. Maybe I'm just, I'm just curious for the Kennel Law to take on the state of the world 2022. Well, I, 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 I mean, I have a hard time intellectually challenging your pessimism, right. but emotionally I do challenge it. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to wake up in the morning uh, in a somber mood and convince that the end of the world is near. So I then search for evidence where, to prove that maybe the end of the world is not near. I mean, I look at, at I mean, I think there's a good chance, for instance, the Republicans will not capture the Senate this year. I agree. The problem will capture that. I, I, so I the idea of having some divided government is a good thing, particularly with the Trump Republican mm-hmm. base. There, there's some evidence, I would argue, that Trump has lost some of his glow. Without question. And, without question. And, 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 and therefore, it may be hard. But Trumpism has not. But Trumpism is not. And that's that's the scary Trumpism part. Trumpism is not. But but most anything is better than Trump. Yes. Most anything, not yeah. everything. Yeah. But uh, he, he he's so extreme. So even if a Republican wins in 24, it you know, you have there's a good chance it won't be Donald Trump and a return to his lawlessness. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a positive thing. If if you look at um, the press. I look at the amazing job the press does in reporting the lies and, and the fake the fraudulent election claims. Uh, and that's a very encouraging thing. And I think it's also a very encouraging thing that the, the, um, the January 6th committee, I mean, they're doing an amazing job. And by the way, brilliantly produced, brilliant narrative story. Really done it. They've done a great job and, and no grandstanding. And they, 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 it is a different level than any other hearing we've ever seen. And, and I, I, I look forward to my next plate of chicken parmesan. <laughs> That's the headline is the last one. I, I saw an issue, a scary stat the other day that 70% of uh, Fox viewers think that, forget the insurrection that they don't blame Donald Trump for it, that it was Antifa and it was left-wing radicals. That, that's three out of their four viewers actually think, forget, they've been watching that footage and think those are people in costumes. So if you ran into Rupert Murdoch today and I, you've profiled him in the past, what would you say to him? I would say to him that that he is, you are doing a very dangerous thing in this country. Fox News has created an alternate set of facts, an alternate universe of facts for your viewers which means they don't accept what should be universal facts. The election, Biden won the election. Um, the sun is coming up in the morning, whatever. Um, and, and that is so dangerous. And for you to allow these nighttime, primetime three anchors to spew some of the, the false claims they make, uh, and it's not just them, it's others on, on Fox News. I mean, that is against what you said you wanted to do by getting into journalism when you were, when you were a young man, and I profiled him as a young man. I profiled him re- recounting that period of time. So he's got a lot to answer for, and 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 I would hope he would think about his grandkids, and and maybe not his kids, but his grandkids, and say, "What do I owe this country that gave me its citizenship when I lied and said I I moved here and I wasn't an Australian citizen?" Yeah. I got to ask you about frenemies as an old ad guy, and you interviewed me at Ad Week last week. And you know the premise of the book is that kind of advertising is in a uh, existential crisis. Uh, I'm curious, three or four or five years later, I think the book was 17 or 18. Um, what what's your take on the state of advertising today? I think in some ways it's actually in a better position than it was when I wrote the book three or four years ago. I mean, you see Netflix now saying. They need ads. Right. One of the things we're discovering, and I wrote this in the book at the time, the notion that, that you can have subscription model alone and that people who are overwhelmed with all the cable and other subscriptions they pay can afford the Substacks and the Huffington Post and all these other digital media uh, and, and, and cable and Netflix and, and Disney Plus, et cetera, 
I think, is a pipe dream. So advertising is essential to subsidize media. And we're learning that today. And witness Reed Hastings and, and Netflix saying, who had always said he would never yeah. go to advertising, now saying he has to go to advertising. And increasingly, you know, there are some publications, the New York Times, The Economist, The Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, that can raise subscription prices and they don't have to rely on advertising because they, they have an affluent readership. But most are not in that category yeah. and they need to turn to advertising. So advertising will is getting a, a bit of a bounce back. I mean, NBC just announced, for instance, that this is one of the best years up fronts they've ever had. Yeah. You know, the, the premise of, not the premise, the, what I'll call the tripod of people make shit, they have shit to sell and then people watch shit. That, that thing is never changing, you know? I mean, that somehow the fact that somebody drinks beer and somebody wants to sell beer and then somebody has content, that triangulation will always exist in one form or another. It will keep changing, it will keep moving. But, Tony, I wonder, I wonder whether you agree with me on the following. Advertising has to change. We are spoiled by Netflix and HBO we're not, because we're not interrupted by ads when we've watched them. And therefore, we don't, People increasingly don't want to be interrupted. So the ads have to take a different form. The ads have to give something back. They either have to be more entertaining, more informative, more, which always was the case in great advertising, even before any of this this recent dilemma that the best ads always gave something back to the viewer. It wasn't like, here's my product and buy it and here's why you should buy it. And and particularly also now, forgetting even the media landscape, when you put in a a up-and-coming audience that has more control and demands more from companies and wants more from companies, they all of that will add to a better product. I couldn't agree with you more. Ken Aletta, I really appreciate your time. The book, the new monster book, Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence. Thank goodness you are not silent about anything. Thank you, my friend. Maureen Dowd wrote an, an extraordinary piece and, and talked about your impact in all of this. And uh, uh, it just, it really belies how important this book is. Well, she t- it, it, she, it's it's probably a almost four thousand word piece, right? So it, it, she talked about the relationship with the brothers mm-hmm. uh, and how that's severed. She talked about the she talked a lot about the 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 enablers, the people who enabled yeah. him. She talked about his talent. She talked about um, she we talked about me and how I how I followed Harvey. Thank you, Donnie. Enjoyed talking to you. All right, me. you stay healthy. Okay, got it. All right, that's it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed our Kenalona interview and I uh, hope you enjoyed our Brands of the Week. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. Spotify, Apple, anyplace else. Remember to rate, re- review, and or subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. And you can watch our videos on YouTube. Please subscribe there also and leave your comments on YouTube. We hope to see you again next week on Our Brand. Have a safe, safe week. Hi, this is Jim Jeffries. I have a podcast out called I Don't Know About That. Each episode is a different subject. We bring an expert on and I say everything I think I know about that subject and then they correct me. Join in, listen to the podcast, you'll have a laugh and you might learn something. Follow, rate and review I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries. Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also catch video releases each week on YouTube.